Well, as I look around, I don't know how used are you or how you have had in your life farewells, occasions where you had to say farewell to someone. They can often be tricky occasions. They can often be painful goodbyes. Some of us have had to say goodbye to our parents, perhaps to our children, to our spouses, to friends, to dear brothers and sisters in the faith. Not knowing when again you will see them, or perhaps even knowing that you will never again see them in this life. Those who have had to move abroad, move to different cities or even to different countries, those who have lost parents, spouses, they know all too well how difficult these moments can be. How despairing the soul feels. I particularly remember in my own life when I had to move to London and my, my wife and kids stayed behind for a season. How hard it felt getting on that airplane. How hard it felt that first night uh, getting into your bed and not having your wife there. And seeing her, I'm thankful for technology, but just being able to see them through a, a screen. Paul had to deal with farewells in his ministry, in his life. He went through this many times, I'm sure. In this, in this chapter alone, chapter 20, he had to say goodbye to the church in Ephesus, to the churches in Macedonia, northern Greece today, in the churches in Achaia, in southern Greece. He had to say goodbye to the church in Troas. He was well acquainted with the grief of farewells. And today, we have yet another farewell. This discourse to the Ephesian elders is a, is a farewell address. It's him saying, giving the last recommendation, saying the last few words that he can say because as he says here, he's positive, he's, he's convinced that he will never see them again. So this is an emotional passage. Sometimes words seem to just be there on the paper, but this was an emotional moment this is the only time in the book of Acts that actually you find Paul speaking uh, to Christians. Most of his recorded, all of his recorded uh, interactions are with unbelievers, with Jews, with, with Greeks, with leaders, with, with governors. But it's all with those who are out of the faith, outside of the faith. And this is the only time that in the book of Acts, that Paul is addressing specifically a Christian audience, or at least that we have, not the only time, there's plenty of times he's done that, it's the only time that it is recorded for us, his words. It is the end, this, this passage, just for those of you that perhaps haven't been uh, uh, accompanying this, this series uh, consistently, uh, this is the end, uh, chapter 20 marks the end of of. Paul's third missionary journey. It marks the end of his missionary journeys, actually. 
the text focuses on the farewell because Paul is passing by Miletus and he's going to Jerusalem. And over there in Jerusalem, he will, will, he will find himself not able to once again go on these missionary journeys. He will be arrested and, and the rest of the, the book of Acts is his appearing before Jewish, uh, Roman authorities. Uh, it's him making his way to Rome. This passage is also important, and we won't focus that much today on that, but it is also important uh, in, the, in, the, in the realm of ecclesiology, in the realm of what is a church according to Scripture. Because in this passage, is it, uh, one of the few passages, or, one of the, or, or the only passage, that actually we see the word shepherd, uh, elder, presbyter, and bishop being used as synonyms teaching us that, in fact, elders are shepherds, shepherds, pastors, and pastors are bishops. Those three things are just synonyms of the same office in the New Testament. Last week we considered then we, that Paul was in Troas in this unusual uh, worship service that lasted all the way up until the early hours of the morning. And that as he was preaching close to midnight, this young man named Eutychus, he fell asleep. He fell down from the third story window and he died. But the Lord raised this young man um, back to life. And, and we now pick up from there the following day. And we, we see, Luke says, that we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos. And the question that we are faced with is, why didn't Paul go with them? He was intending to be with them and to go with them to Jerusalem. Why is the reason, what is the reason that he stayed uh, behind and went by, by land? Some commentators seem to imply that he was perhaps staying behind because he, he wanted just to take care of some business, perhaps with, with the young uh, Eutychus, or perhaps he was afraid of... of Mind you, he was carrying a lot of money, uh, or, uh, that offering for Jerusalem, so he was probably uh, trying to, to be careful with it. So Luke and the rest of the messengers get on the boat in, in Troas, and they go to Assis, and, and, and Paul goes by land. If you, you don't need to go there, but if you have a map, you can see how how it's a kind of a peninsula, and the boat would go around the coast, and Paul would make a shorter journey lengthwise uh, by land. And from there, it's about 20 miles. From there, from Assos, Luke tells us that they sailed to, to Mytilene, and the main town of the island of Lesbos, which was about, again, 30, 40 miles away. And there they stayed overnight. And then the following day they passed through Chios and arrived later at the island of Samos. This is boats making their, their callings uh, in different places. You, you fill a boat and then you have kind of like Royal Mail or, uh, uh, or, or Amazon deliveries. They, they're kind of going through the, the different ports, uh, putting down uh, and, and taking up different deliveries, different trades. Um, and from there, from the, the, the island of Samos, they reached Miletus, a very ancient, prosperous city 
located again about 30 miles south of Ephesus. You, you can see that on the map. And there is where Paul chose or asked to meet with the elders. And uh, Luke does make that observation here. He says that Paul was keen on not going to Ephesus because he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And the, the question is, why was Paul in such a hurry to be there on the day of Pentecost? It wasn't because Paul was keen on keeping a Jewish feast. Certainly by now, because this is a time that he has written some of the letters in the New Testament that informs us of his way of thinking. Certainly by now, Paul was quite clear the, the old things are, have passed away. It is the new things have come. No longer Christian believers are to hold to Passovers, to, to ceremonial law, because Christ now is our Passover, as he says in Corinthians. So Paul was not hurrying to Pentecost, to Jerusalem, to, to observe the day of Pentecost. That is, seems quite clear. The reason why I believe he was so keen on being there on that day is because that day was a day, a day of great feast, a day of great gathering. He wanted to be in Jerusalem at a time when a lot of people would be there. He was not in a hurry to worship according to the law. Instead, he was focused on building up the church. What's a, the best time to be in Jerusalem if you're trying to evangelize? Well, it's going to be Passover or the Feast of Pentecost. That's, that's those two major holidays that people come and gather around Jerusalem. And he wanted to be there at that time so that he could bring people who weren't yet Christians to the knowledge of Christ. Matthew Henry he puts it like this, and I, I think he captures it quite well. He said, he aimed to be there by the Feast of Pentecost because it was a time of concourse, which good, would give him an opportunity of propagating the gospel among the Jews and the proselytes who came from all parts to worship at the feast. And the Feast of Pentecost had been particularly made famous among the Christians by the pouring out of the Spirit. It would certainly be a good occasion to be there, a good occasion to meet with other Christian leaders from, from Judea, to tell them about, about what the Lord had done over the last three, four years of this third missionary journey. It would certainly be a good time to tell them about his future plans. He wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to go all the way to Spain or to the Iberian Peninsula. But for the time being, he knows that he won't be able to meet again with the elders and with the people of Asia. So he calls for the elders of Ephesus. And as he's concluding this third missionary journey. So this section, although big, can be divided quite easily or quite helpfully into three sections. One of them is Paul looking back at his ministry. The other one is Paul looking forward to the future. And thirdly, he looks up, entrusting himself and the, the church in Ephesus to the Lord's sovereign control and will. So let us first look at the looking back. Paul is intending to encourage these elders. He's intending to, to uh, tell them to stand fast. 
What does he do? He looks back. He says, look at my ministerial conduct. Look at how I've behaved among you. And take my example and use it for your own selves in the way that you behave. Perform your duties faithfully and look at me as I, I look to Christ. Follow me as I'm a follower of Christ. And the, the Apostle Paul highlights some of the marks of his own ministry to the Ephesian elders. He highlights the marks of his ministry. It's a ministry of humility, a ministry of suffering, a ministry of self-denial, and a ministry of proclaiming the gospel. First of all, he tells them, remember how the integrity of, of, of the office that I've held and that you hold. He's not trying to defend his uh, reputation from criticism or anything in saying this. He's not trying to vindicate himself of anything. He's, he's saying these things so that he would spur upon the, the, the elders in Ephesus to teach them by his own example. To impress indelibly in their memory how the Apostle Paul behaved amongst them. And one of the points is that he proceeded with humility. He says that he conducted himself, how he conducted himself in serving. How he came to man, uh, in a manner always lived among you, serving the Lord. He's saying to them, I was a servant. The word servant here is the word slave, right? The verb is, comes from the, word, from the verb of being a, a bond servant, a slave. He said, I was a servant. I served the Lord. There is an element of humility here. He literally declares himself a slave of Christ in the service of his people. He learned to consider others better than himself. He was ready to serve them with mercy. As every servant of Christ, as every son and daughter of our Lord should. He's basically following what he will later write to the, to the, to the church in, at Philippi when he's incarcerated. He's following the example of Christ who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death of the cross. Just as the Son of Man came to serve and not to be served, the Apostle Paul believed himself as a follower of Christ, that he was coming to serve and not to be served. And that's how he exhorts the elders in Ephesus. But that's how being an elder is nothing less than being a Christian. You, you, you turn to the letters of Paul to Timothy where he gives all those qualifications on, uh, uh, for, for eldership. And you then realize he's actually just saying that you're supposed to be a Christian. That's, that's being an ordinary good Christian. Those are the qualifications for eldership. So in many ways, because we don't believe in this uh, distinction that was very Roman Catholic... Uh, back in the day, or is still very Roman Catholic today, that there is a, a, a clergy and a laity. We don't believe that. There is the priesthood of all saints. And yes, within the Church of Christ, there are offices and there are positions, but that doesn't mean that there is a, a kind of a, a, a spiritual superiority to elders 
to pastors. We're all the same. I'm a sheep among the, the, the flock of God. In many ways, and, and you see this through the, the Apostle Paul's writings. Look at what he says, for instance, to the church in Rome. Be of the same mind. This is him now not talking to elders at, at Ephesus, but this is him talking to regular, ordinary Christians in the church of Rome. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. It's not just a church in Rome. To this, to this same church in Ephesus, he wrote, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of your calling with which you were called, with all lowliness, with all humility, with all gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. To the church at Philippi, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness, in humility of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. To the church at Colossae, uh, in Colossae, uh, the Colossians, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. Those who are to be Christians are to follow the example of the master. And he was meek, he was gentle, and he was lowly. There is no room for pride in the Christian life. It is especially true of those who uh, seek for office, those who are seeking to serve the Lord in, in the ministry of, of being an elder or a deacon. But it is true of all of us. The second element of Paul's ministry that is emphasized here as Paul looks backwards to his ministry uh, in, uh, in Asia is the element of suffering. He mentions that he suffered. The years he spent serving the Lord in Asia were accompanied by tears, agonizing, and by trials. Luke does not mention many of those sufferings. So, the third missionary journey of Paul is basically just these two chapters, chapter 19 and 20. And manifestly, Luke is not concerned so much at this point in his record keeping as he's writing this with detailing the sufferings of Paul as much as he's concerned about detailing some particular events that happened of note in the, in the ministry uh, of the third missionary journey. The, so Luke doesn't mention many, but he, re, he, he mentions enough. And we have from the letters of Paul the knowledge that a lot of things were happening that are not mentioned in the book of Acts. There were actually trials and tribulations that were coming upon Paul. And Paul here mentions that. He, he twice, he says, that he shed tears, that he cried. I'm sure he cried more than twice in four years. But, but twice he mentions that he has shed tears once uh, because he was persecuted by his enemies. Verse 19, he says, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting Jews of the Jews. And then in verse 31, it says that he agonized 
for the converts. He agonized for the Christians. Verse 31, he says, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He was agonizing. He was suffering. And he's saying to the Ephesian elders, it is a ministry of suffering. I don't know if the Lord is calling any of you here to ministry, but realize that you cannot follow a suffering Savior and expect to have an honoring, uh, uh, joyful, jolly good old ministry. It's not possible. If you're to, suffer, to follow uh, a suffering Savior, it is a suffering ministry. And it is a, for all Christians, again. Through many tribulations, one must enter the kingdom of God. Paul said in the, at the end of his first missionary journey. A lot of tears. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, in his first letter, that he fought beasts at Ephesus. He says that if in the manner of man I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? I don't know if he's speaking literally here. Perhaps one day when we get to the book of Corinthians, I'll have a firmer opinion on that. Or if he's literally fought with beasts, or if he's speaking in, in some kind of uh, allegorical language, whether literal or figurative, it, it indicates at least something of the seriousness of the sufferings and the trials and the struggles that the apostle faced. And he's saying to them, you're going to face them as well. In the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul says that a lot of tribulations, that many tribulations befell him in Asia, that were beyond him strength. He says he even uh, despaired for his own life. He even despaired for his own life. The Apostle Paul knows what it is to suffer. And he's not saying these things. And these things are not in Holy Scripture just for us to be sympathetic to him. Oh, poor Paul. You really feel for him. No, these things are written to be an instruction for us. They were said by Paul not to, to garner any sympathy from the Ephesian elders. They were meant to be an instruction. This is what you should expect. And this is what we should expect. To suffer for Christ's sake. To carry a cross. Thirdly, Paul's ministry, as he looks back, and was selfless, was self-denying. Paul was very, is very clear in other places that uh, it is good and proper and that it should be the norm that ministers, uh, that elders should be um, supported by their congregations. That ministers of the gospel should live from the gospel. But at points, expediency and love for the brethren might prove otherwise. And Paul says that while he was at Ephesus, that he required nothing of the Ephesian church, but that he actually worked with his own hands to support himself and those around him in the ministry. He preferred to work with his own hands to provide for himself. And then he says, it is, as Jesus says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is 
And he's saying this to encourage the church, to encourage the elders, first of all, but to encourage all of us as we read this 2,000 uh, years later, to encourage us all to work hard, to meet our own needs, to have something to help those in need. In order to emphasize the priority of the gospel, Paul also mentions that he was, the fourthly, that his ministry was one of preaching. He encourages the elders of Ephesus with his own example by saying, my ministry to you was one of preaching the word of God. He says, I, he recalls who he preached it to, how he preached it, in what manner he proclaimed it, what he preached. He says, everywhere I could, everywhere I, I had an opportunity, whether it was in the synagogues, as we read at the beginning of chapter 20, whether it was in the school of Tyrannus, or how, as he says it here, whether from house to house I preach to all, Jews or Greeks, doesn't matter. I, I never shied away from preaching the whole counsel of God. All kinds of people and all the word of God. He says, he says that despite the significant... Uh, despite the significant difference that existed at this time between Jews and Gentiles, he's basically saying they all need the same. They need the gospel. They need repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. They need forgiveness of sins. They need justification in order to have life. We don't have much of his preaching recorded for us, but we know enough he preached the whole counsel, the whole plan, the whole design of God. Even though many a time these doctrines, these teachings were, would certainly have upset the audience. He never shied away from teaching it. And he's saying to the Ephesian elders, you must do the same. And for us, what it says is we must receive the word of God. Because that is the ordinary means that God has appointed for the growth of the, and edification of the church. It is the gospel that we need. He calls it the gospel of grace. It's kind of like a, a, an overemphasizing. The gospel is already grace, but he says the gospel of the grace of God in verse, in verse 24, emphasizing, underscoring the gracious nature of the good news that the Apostle Paul preached, the message of salvation through God alone, through God, by God's grace alone, through repentance and faith in Christ alone. So quickly, now let's, let's just look at the second element. Not only Paul looks back and uses himself as, as an example, he looks forward. He looked back, he reminded his hearers of his conduct, over the years. But Paul was not the kind of man to dwell on the past. In fact, he, he wrote later, after this, when he was in prison, he wrote a letter to the Philippians, to the, the church at Philippi. And he says, forgetting, speaking of him, forgetting those things that, which are in the past, forgetting those things which are behind, looking forward to those things which are uh, before me, I press on toward the goal for the upward, uh, for the prize, or toward the prize of the high calling, the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. 
So here he's doing that. He's not looking behind. He's not using this as some kind of uh, building himself up, building a, rap a rapport uh, with, with the Ephesian elders. He's, he's telling them this so that they will remember these things as they go on to the future. He's saying to them, I'm admonishing you, remember these things because in the future you will have to be faithful. You will have to act in accordance with this ministry. You will face difficulties. You will face uh, ravenous savages, wo savage wolves. I'm going to Jerusalem. You're going to be left alone. You need to know these things. He says he's going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. He's going there and he knows that he's going, to, he's going to have chains and tribulations in his way. And he knows that the, the Ephesian elders will also find chains and tribulations in their way. So for this reason he tells them, take heed, take good care of your souls. To Timothy, he, would late, he will later write, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. He told them to take care of the flock that God had entrusted to them by the Holy Spirit. That God had made them pastors or bishops or, or elders, overseers over that church. And I love how it says here that God purchased with his own blood. God purchased with his own blood. This idea, this false doctrine, this false teaching that has risen in the last 200 years that, oh no, the, the, the early Christians were not so convinced of, 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 of Christ's divinity. It was a later development over the years. God purchased the church with his own blood. Dear, there. Plain and simple. It was God that purchased. So we'll speak a little bit more towards the end about this. But that's what he says to them. Hold fast. Take good care of yourselves. Take care of the church that God has placed you over. And be encouraged because the church is the church that the incarnate God paid with his blood to redeem. And he looks up. Besides reminding these hearers of his conduct and the emphasis of the ministry uh, of his ministry in Ephesus, uh, besides anticipating the, the dangers and the trials that the church would go through, Paul is not some kind of pie in the sky uh, person who's, who, who thinks that, that as long as we can cover all the all the, the surprising elements that might come our way as long as we can predict all kinds of eventualities will be fine no no not at all Paul knows that what they need is God to be with them they need the grace of God so he looks up. He commends them to the care. He says, Now therefore I commend you to God and into the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among the, all those who are sanctified. Paul is not trusting, actually. Uh, uh, in spite of all of this, and I'm sure this is 
more of a brief summary as so often is the case uh, with Luke's accounts. But Paul is not so much trusting the Ephesian elders to do the right thing. He's ultimately trusting God to uphold the Ephesian elders to do the right thing. He's trusting in the sovereign grace and the power of Christ. And after this, they knelt, they prayed, they implored the Lord to build them up and to keep them from all evil and sin. And they wept freely because this was a farewell. They were never to see the Apostle Paul again. They embraced him, they kissed him, they sorrowed. For three years, the Apostle Paul had been like a father to them like a spiritual leader to them. And now they wept. And now they were sad to see him go. Before I conclude, the question perhaps that you have in your minds, what happened to the, to the Ephesian church? It's a, it's a very important question. What happened to this church? Well, from the, the letter to the Ephesians, uh, well, the letter to the Ephesians is earlier, um, but from the, what the Apostle John wrote in the book of Revelation, we find that actually the church went through some difficulties. That the Ephesian church did not heed the calling and the, the warning of the Apostle Paul. The church in Ephesus is included in that list and it says that it was the church in Ephesus that lost its first love. The, despite the messages, wolves came, the, the warning, wolves did come into the church and devoured. And the church in Ephesus was at least in part corrupted. It took them to heart. Most definitely it was the work of the Spirit. And the church was restored. So there is always hope for churches that have strayed, for churches that the wolves have ravaged through. There is always hope. So what are the lessons we learn from this passage? Let me just highlight three, four quick uh, lessons. Number one, again and again. I know this becomes quite repetitive. Sometimes... <laughs> The repetitiveness of the Bible is, is, meant, is there for our edification so that we wouldn't notice the, the, the same key being pressed time and time again as if in the piano just that tone is being set. It is the gospel preaching that is central to the growth and the health of the church. There is no program outside of Scripture that will grow a church, that will edify the body of Christ. There is nothing of, of man-made uh, worldly wisdom uh, programs of church growth, of, of church uh, edification outside that will truly make a church grow outside of Scripture. It is Scripture that we need. It is the gospel of Christ that we need. And again, this is being emphasized here. It is preaching. It is humble, long-suffering, self-sacrificing preaching of, and, and living the gospel that the church needs. We are being told that it is for everyone, every kind of person, whether rich or poor, whether Greek or Gentile, whether from, whether from this country or from other nations, whether it's for all the world. 
It's the gospel that is the instrument used by God to build up the church. Not healings, not miracles, not, not, not some other kind of spiritual uh, method. It is the gospel preaching. Whether it is in the local synagogue, as Paul did it, in the school of Tyrannus, from house to house, and in any other place where he had the opportunity, he preached the gospel and the whole counsel of God. And that's what the world needs. The gospel of the kingdom, repentance towards God, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The whole counsel of God that is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, for correction, for training up in righteousness. For that the man of God may be uh, perfect and thoroughly equipped for his service to do every good work. That's what we need. That's what we need. There is not to be social media uh, influencers to have a, pre a presence online. Their role, first and foremost, I would say alone, is to be pastors of the flock, to take spiritual care for the flock that was entrusted to them. And to be qualified for this work, they must first be diligent, as it says here, of their own souls. I said this. Sometimes you, you, being in ministry so so. For so little time, being in ministry for three years, um, you wonder and you ask yourself, uh, how are are my expectations being met, and how are what I hoped for and what is happening in ministry. One of the things that I've realized is that the most difficult part of ministry is not actually the dealing with this older brother or that older sister who tend to be quite hard-headed. You, you also get that, but that's not the most difficult part. It's not dealing with this person who is, who is uh, uh, straying away from the faith. That is difficult. It breaks your heart. It's not dealing with, with, with people leaving us or, or dealing with, with people coming in and then not returning. Those things hurt and those things are hard at times. But the most difficult part of ministry, you want to know what it is? It's dealing with my own self. It's, it's, it's keeping a close eye on my behavior. It was, I think, uh, Tozer that says that the person he prays the most in his congregation is his own self. That's the person for whom he prays the most. And the reality is this, and we've seen a, a, a church history bears witness to this throughout the centuries. And this week alone, we've seen that same history if not repeating itself, at least rhyming with what has happened in the past. The reality is this. It is, it is not if, if a church apostatizes, if a church strays, if a, a church gives here to the ravenous and savage wolves. It's not because of secular teachers out there. It's not because of, of, of regular church members sitting in the pew. You know when a church loses its way? In, in church history, it's always been like this. And this week, we've seen it again. It's when the bishops, the elders, the, the pastors, those that are in authority, lose their way. We've seen it, didn't we, with the Church of England this week? Sin is no longer sin. 
Now it's blessed. It's a license to sin. The problem and the care that needs to be had starts with those who hold authority, who hold a teaching ministry. It is the seminary professors. It is those who deny. It's, it's what happened in the, 20, uh, in the 19th and 20th century. How did it start to go off so badly to, to some of these larger, bigger denominations? The, I'm not going to name names. Um, but the big denominations, how did it go wrong? It was the guys being put in the pulpit, being taught in seminaries that the resurrection was not real, that the word of God was not really inspired. It started like that. And then you look at the, uh, at the church, at those denominations, two generations, uh, from two generations further in the future, and you realize that's where it started. The ravenous wolves came amongst them, and they, and they ravaged the flock. It is very important. It is very important. But finally, brethren, and quickly, quickly, what hope do we have? What hope do we have as a church? Small as we are, in the midst of so many influences, the church of England now is going this direction. It's, it's kind of now it's starting to shine the spotlight on us even more of our positions of holding to what scripture says about sexuality, about moral things. What hope do we have now when, the, when perhaps the, 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 the dam that was holding the tide that is probably coming to us in the next few years, what hope do we have of surviving it? Well, it's not that your pastor is going to be able to, to, to handle it. It's not that your elders are going to be able to, to, to take care of it. The hope that we have is that the church was bought, redeemed with Christ's blood. That a price was paid, a high price, a price that no man or woman, no created mind can, can, can comprehend and express. That pri the price was paid and that the church is the property of God. It, that the church is bought and paid for. And that the church will give, be given to the Savior's hand at the end of the eschaton. The Father received the price. The Father accepted the price. And he will draw all of those that were purchased into this kingdom. That we are not the property of elders, of the older church members. That Ridley Hall, not the building, but Ridley Hall... Is not the property of, of the older members or of the elders. That Ridley Hall is the property of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you conceive the value of each and every one of your brothers and sisters? Can you question the efficacy of the blood of Christ to accomplish these things? Oh, let us not trifle with the church of God. Paul's confidence ultimately was not in the church elders at Ephesus. It was in the blood and righteousness and the, and the wisdom of Christ. And that should be where our confidence lies. He knew that struggles and hardships and sufferings and oppositions and persecutions and all manner of difficult things would come upon that church. And probably we are in very much a similar situation now. But if we are to survive the ravenous wolves, if we are to 
to, to be sufficient for these things. It is not in our own selves. We kind of plead with the Apostle Paul, who is sufficient for these things? The Apostle Paul answers the question a little bit later and says, Our sufficiency is from God, who has enabled us to be ministers of the new covenant, not of letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And if the Lord builds up the house, the house will indeed be built. But if the Lord is not building it, we're laboring in vain. So let us take heed of ourselves. Let us watch over ourselves. And let us trust that indeed we are in the hands of the Almighty God because He's our only hope, the maker of the heavens and the earth. He is our help. And let us praise Him because He is for us. And we in Him are more than conquerors.